Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. If you're joining us for the first time this evening, we are closing up our series tonight in uh, uh, the wisdom literature. We've gone through about a seven-week series in the book of Proverbs. Last week, we hit Ecclesiastes. And tonight, I'm going to hit Job to kind of break down the three that we've addressed. We've kind of looked at Proverbs as, as a way to live well in God's world, namely by fearing the Lord. Then last week, Catherine hit on the book of Ecclesiastes, arguably one of the hardest theological books in the Old Testament and went after the meaning of life. And Solomon, the, the, the suggested author of this book, kind of has this statement over and over again, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. This Hebrew word, hevel, hevel, all is hevel. And it's kind of this idea that, that everything is a mist, it's a vapor, it's not something that can be grasped. And so he concludes, after spending his life looking in every form of pleasure for the meaning of life, that all is in fact nothing but a mist, a vapor, but we should fear the Lord and we should walk in obedience. And tonight, I'm going to, to lean into arguably one of the most disturbing books in the Old Testament, the book of Job. Now, uh, it is probably not suggested nor wise to try and knock out this entire book, all 42 chapters in one night. As I was prepping this last week, I kept hearing that like, Boromir quote to Frodo and Fellowship of the Wing Ring. There are other ways, Frodo. <laughs> other paths we might take. Sam, that was for you, right? Like, so here's the thing. As I was studying, I was like, man, we should do like a four-week series in this book. And my hope would be that in the future we will. But for tonight, I'm going to try and do the entire book. So bear with me, okay? This book leans into the question of suffering. Everyone say Suffering. And this is why it's such a, such kind of a feisty book in the Old Testament, because it pokes at questions that all of us are asking. We might have already been asking and we might be asking for the rest of our lives. But this book, like every other book in the Bible, preaches the gospel. And my hope this evening is to show you that. So before we hop in, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you and we need you. We need your presence here. Lord, we can, we can plow the field, we can even sow the seed, but you're the only one who can make things grow. You are the only one who gives life. You are the only one who gives freedom. You are the only one who gives faith. And so Lord, I pray that you would come and you would do all of those things to us here tonight. I pray that as we look at this text, we would see you, you would show us yourself. Father, I pray that you would give a special grace this evening to myself, to my brothers and my sisters to wrestle with you, to ask you questions, to search for you, to know you. Father, I pray that you would come and you would comfort the afflicted tonight and I pray that you would afflict the comfortable tonight. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe? And if you're with me tonight, can you say amen? Amen. 
the question of why. October, 2017, I will never forget. I was up here in the 240s hallway. I was sitting in my office and I received a phone call from my sister-in-law, Sabrina. Now to give you a little bit of context, when I graduated in 2012, I left Colorado and I went to the God-forsaken state of Texas. It was tough. It was tough. It's humid. It's hot. I hated it. I'm just kidding. God's there sometimes. All right. And I lived, I, I was working down there with now my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, but at the time I just moved down with my best friend and we moved in with his older sister, her husband and their firstborn son, Micaiah. He was three months old. And I, arguably I'd say that this was one of the richest seasons of my life, one of the richest year and a half I've ever had. I was a young man, 18 years old, living in their house and I became so tight-knit with this family. Little did I know that they would actually become my family. I would marry their sister, which was awesome, but that wasn't the case at the time. And we became very, very tight-knit. We'd have dinners together. I would wake up in the morning at 5 a.m. when their son Micaiah was crying and I'd get him out of his crib and I'd spend the first couple hours in the morning with him. And at nights, I would go and I would put him to sleep. And as I watched their marriage, this, this young marriage like that I was having the privilege of getting to like observe as a young man, man, I was like, man, that's the type of husband that I want to be. That's the type of father I want to be. Like I became tight knit with this family. Like their joys became my joys. Their pains became my pains, but we became like a tight knit unit. Their son, Micaiah, one of my favorite kids on the planet earth. And I'll never forget October, 2017. I was sitting in my office up there and I got a phone call that wrecked me. My sister, she called and she said, I have some bad news. And I said, what's going on? And she said that her husband had been having an affair for quite some time, that the other woman's pregnant and that he wants to leave. And at this point, she was pregnant with her third child. And I sat there in my office, tears in my eyes, knowing that my sister-in-law was going through so much pain. And there's one word that popped into my mind. Why? 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 And over the course of the next two and a half years, I watched as my sister-in-law and her children went through absolute, just unbearable pain, going through a divorce and having to wrestle through that reality. And I watched my sister-in-law ask the question, why, why, why? And here's what I believe, that every person sitting in this room at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you're going to ask God this question, why? Why? And I feel that if we don't learn how to wrestle with this question well, if we don't know how to wrestle with the question of why do, quote, bad things happen to good people. We looked around the earth in, from March through like December of 2020 and we were going, what is going on? Why is this taking place? The friend that Pastor Victor was just talking about tonight, she's in the hospital with her family, being on the verge of their seat, not knowing if her father's going to die. They're asking themselves that question, God, why? And when we open up this book, Job, this begins to kind of unpack this question. We're gonna see this man in the Old Testament ask this question, God, Why? And what I want you to see tonight and what I wanna invite you into tonight is that the Christian faith doesn't ignore that, but in fact invites it. God's not scared of your questions. He's not scared of your wrestling. 
And God is not ignoring the brokenness, the pain, or the suffering of this world. And my hope is that you will see that this evening. So this is what I'm going to do. There are 42 chapters in this book and it is unrealistic for me to read all of them to you. You'd fall asleep anyway. But what I wanna do is I'm going to, I'm gonna read kind of this first chapter that I'm gonna story tell the rest of, of what takes place here. I'm gonna hop in and read some things. And I'm gonna try and show you as we go through the night in the classic Tim way, three things we see about God from this text. And instead of opening up with the God statement on this one, I'm going to let the God statement be point number three. Okay, so Job chapter one, let me set the context for you. We open up in verses one through five, where we have this man who lives in the East and his name is Job. And God has blessed this man generously. This man has 7,000 sheep and he's got 3,000 camels and he's got 500 ox and he's got 500 female donkeys and many servants and he's got seven sons and he's got three daughters and he's got the dream life. And the text says that there was none greater in the East than this man, Job. Then the scene shifts in verse six. It goes what seems to be to a heavenly throne room or a courtroom, something that's taking place off earth. And this is where we're gonna pick up here in verse six. If you don't have your Bible, follow with me on the screen. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. Look here, who fears God and turns away from evil. We see again this theme in this third book a man who fears God, who sees God for who he is, who has an awe and respect for him. Let's keep reading. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons, his being Job, Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So this is the scene that we have. A man who's been blessed generously by God. God in his courtroom speaking to the Satan, which in the Hebrew is the oppressor. He looks at him and he says, where have you come from? And Satan says, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And and God says, have you considered, have you seen my servant Job? A man who loves righteousness, who is blameless, who fears me and who resists evil. And Satan's response to God is, yeah, but there's only one reason why he does that. Look at his life. You've blessed him generously. You've made him comfortable. He has so much to lose and he hasn't lost it. You take that away and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, I give you permission. Take it all away, but don't touch his health. And we fast forward and he loses everything. And what's Job's response? He rips his robe, he shaves his head, he falls down and he worships God. And he says, naked I came, naked I shall go. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It seems to be that Job passes the test. You fast forward to chapter two. We're back in the throne room of the Lord, the Satan back and God goes, have you seen my servant Job? How he is blameless, how he fears me. And Satan responds and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But take his health away. Take his health away. And I promise you, he will curse you to his face. And so God responds and he says, I'll let you take his health away. Only don't kill him. Look here in verse seven of chapter two. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, the enemy goes back to God and says, let me take something of his health and let me prove to you that he is not going to be a God-fearing man. So God says, I give you permission, but you can't take his life. So he gives him permission and he strikes him with sores from the bottoms of his feet to the crown of his head. And even Job's wife is going, what are you doing? Like it's time to realize that God has something against you. Curse him and die. And he says, no woman, shall we just receive good things from God and not evil? And in all this, Job did not sin. Now you read this and you go, what in heaven's name is going on? What is taking place right now? But there's something that I want you to notice from these first two chapters in Job and that's this, point one, God is always in control. God is always in control. Now I want you to pay attention to something here. It is not God who inflicts this pain on Job. He gives permission to Job 
to inflict, or he gives permission to Satan to inflict this pain on Job. Now, I know that there's a whole slew of theological questions that come with that. The theologically smart in here are gonna go, yeah, but he gave him permission. I know, we can talk later. But what I want you to pay attention to here is in Genesis 1 and 2, there is no such thing as disease, death, depression, discouragement, or despair. All of those things come in Genesis chapter three. God does not give any of those things to humanity. All of those things come as a product of separation from God. God does not deal any of these things. And what we're given here in Job chapter one and two is a picture that we get of the enemy in the New Testament when when Jesus says that there's an enemy out there who comes to steal, he comes to kill, and he comes to destroy. And this is exactly what we see the enemy wanting to do here in the first two chapters of Job. He's a rabid dog, but hear me. He's a rabid dog on the leash of God's sovereignty. He cannot go beyond what God allows. He cannot do what God does not permit. All of the suffering that we see in all of the universe from Genesis chapter three till now to the end of time does not happen outside of God's control. God is always in control. Now this can do two things for you. You can either go, this really frustrates me because if God is in control, why does he allow suffering to happen? Or it can give you great comfort and peace that God always holds all things and that this enemy cannot operate and cannot do anything outside of what God permissive. This is the first thing I want you to notice. God is always in control, but the story doesn't stop there. It would be interesting if it did stop there because Job would almost be unrelatable at this point. It's like if any of this had happened to us, the truth of the matter is we would have a really hard time walking with God. We'd have a really hard time getting on our knees and still worshiping God. We'd have a really hard time still blessing God with our lips. And God allows us to see the humanity in Job. Over the course of the next 35 chapters, 36 chapters, what we're going to see is three of Job's friends observing Job's suffering and coming and trying to help reconcile why these things are happening in Job's life. Now, through the course of this, I want you to notice three objectives. The first objective that we have to notice in that point one is Satan's objective. Satan's goal is to show God that Job does not love God for God. Satan's goal is that he wants to show God that Job only can love God because of what God has given Job. Are you with me? All right, so this is Satan's objective. Point number two, we're gonna see Job and the friend's objective. They wanna know why. They wanna know why what has happened to Job has happened to Job. And so here's what's gonna happen. Over the course of 36 chapters, we see three arguments given from three different types of people here. Three arguments. The first argument that we're going to see is Job's argument. Job believes he is innocent. I've done nothing wrong. Therefore, the suffering that he is enduring is not a product of divine punishment. So Job kind of arrives and wrestles with this conclusion that he's innocent. He did nothing wrong. Therefore, this can't be divine punishment. So God is either running the universe unjustly or God himself is unjust. This is the logic that Job is trying to find in his mind and and his friends begin to try to respond. 
They begin to go, no, 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 no. You're missing it, Job. So the three friends arguments say, no, no, no. You need to know that God is always just and he always runs the universe justly. So your suffering has to be a product of sin that you've committed against the Lord. Now we know this not to be true. And the author allows us to know this at the beginning of the text, that God himself identifies Job as a blameless and righteous man, a blameless and righteous man. But the, the friends cannot reconcile any other thoughts in their mind. They know that God is just. He always runs the universe justly. So the logic has to be that Job has done something wrong. When we come to chapter 32, we have a fourth friend show up on the scene. His name is Elihu. And there's lots of debate around who this guy is. Many, many think he possibly might be the author of this book. We do not know. But he comes up with a third argument. He says, no, 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 no. God is always just and he always runs the universe justly. Maybe God has different reasons or purposes for his suffering other than divine punishment. And he begins to bring out some logic where he says, maybe it's that God's suffering is keeping you from committing future sin. Or maybe that God, maybe God, or God is allowing you to go through the suffering to produce character or something deeper in you. Either way, Elihu concludes with looking at Job and saying, you are wrong. You are wrong to look at God and say that he is unjust. God is just. This is the second thing I want you to see from this text that, I th text that I think God wants us to see. That God invites us to avoid simple answers to complex questions. Now this is a hard one for us to wrestle with. Because we have a huge temptation as Christians to do this. This is why you're suffering, fill in the blank. This is why God is doing this in your life, fill in the blank. And all of these logics we can see have have a, have a logical conclusion. And yet, none of them are understood. Why? Because when we take our view of our circumstances and allow the view of our circumstances to shape our view of God, we put God in a box. And this is dangerous. Why? Because we're not God. We don't see what God sees. The invitation of the gospel is to say, no, 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 flip that. Let your view of God inform the way you see your circumstances. Are you with me? In order for us to do that, we have to avoid giving simple answers to complex questions. We have to understand that there's a perspective that we do not have. Job did not have it. Satan did not have it. The three friends did not have it. Elihu did not have it. There's a specific perspective that only God has in this story, in, in Job's life and in our life. And when we attempt to give the exact why for God's reasons, what we end up doing is we start creeping into the space of trying to be God ourselves. And God goes, no, I'm not interested in that. And this is where the story gets really, really good. Chapter 38, God shows up on the scene and Job is demanding an answer from God. He wants to know why he has embraced his suffering. And go ahead and put up that verse again there. I love this. The Lord comes and he comes in the form of a storm. In the ESV, it says a whirlwind. And God opens with this. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. Dear God, I would, I would crap my pants if God showed up in a storm and said these words to me. So God shows up after all of this deliberating between Job and, and the three friends and Elihu. And he says, who is this that darkens words with counsel? And he looks at Job and he says, dress for action like a man. I'm going to ask you some questions and you answer me. And over the next four, three to four chapters, God takes Job on a literary tour of the universe, showing him how complex the world is, asking him a series of questions. He looks at Job and he goes, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Are you the one who sets the time and the place for the sun to rise every morning? Where were you when I opened up the deep and brought the waters forth? Are you the one who counts the clouds in the sky that blankets the earth? Are you the one who places the lightning up in the storehouses and then commands the lightning to come down on the earth on your command? Are you the one who puts the snow up in the snow storehouses and commands the snow to fall down on the earth? And question after question after question, he's looking at Job and he says, I'm going to ask, you answer me, where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth. And this is what we have to begin to see in this moment. God is making Job realize that the world is much more complex than Job perceives it to be. He's beginning to show Job all of a sudden that, wait a minute, Job's perspective is 0.000001% of a perspective that God holds from the beginning of time to the end of time and all throughout time and in all of eternity. He's saying, where were you? Explain the logic to me. And he gets to chapter 40 and he looks at Job and he says, give me an answer. And Job begins to get humbled. And he says, who am I? I'm gonna put my hand over my mouth and I'm not gonna answer. And God continues to give him a picture of what God's world looks like, how dangerous it is, how complex it is, how big it is. And then he ends. And in Job 42, this is Job's response after God explains the universe. It says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Look here. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Pay attention here, brothers and sisters. And he says, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job's response to God's questions is, who am I? Forgive me. I uttered things that I did not understand and things that were too wonderful for me. He's kind of using language from the prophet Isaiah here. Well, Isaiah says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. They're higher. God, your ways are not my ways. They're higher. Who am I? Who am I? And this is where, this is where Job, Job arrives at. He goes, who am I? I repent in dust and ashes. I want you to notice something here. God never answers his why. God never answers 
his why. You've had Satan's objective, who was to show God that Job only loved God for what God had to give him. Then you have Job's objective and the three friends' objective and even Elihu's objective. They wanna know why. Why has God brought about this suffering on Job? And we give God's response and he doesn't answer the why. But hear me, he does answer Job. And this is what I want you to notice because God understands it. That when we get fixed on the why, it distracts us from the beauty that the gospel has to offer. And namely, when we are focused on the why, we are not focused on this point number three, that God is enough. God is enough. Look at what happened with Job here, where he says, I wanna know why you've given this suffering to me. And God's response is, you don't run the world that I run. You do not understand how I have to govern the world that I have created. And you're gonna have to arrive at the conclusion that though you might not know why I allowed this to happen in your life, I am enough. Now, here's the interesting thing with suffering. And this is what Satan was trying to get at. You see, suffering will reveal what we build our lives upon. You with me? Suffering, when we begin, when things begin to get taken away from us and we begin to experience pain, we begin to run to the things that we found hope in in the first place. And here's what we're beginning to see in Job, that when we build our life on things, if we build our lives on relationships, if we build our lives on family, if we build our lives on religion, if we build our lives on possessions, if we build our lives on success, then when suffering takes place and suffering begins to take those things away, we are driven away from the source of our joy. Why? Because the source of our joy is being ripped from us with suffering. Are you with me? But if we build our lives on God, then suffering drives us deeper in to the source of our joy. And this is what I want you to pay attention to because brothers and sisters, this is the good news. God does not give us an answer to the why. He doesn't. There are a thousand questions that you have in this room right now where you're going, why? Why has this happened? Why has that happened? We're asking God those questions and hear me, God invites those questions. The book of Job is very proof, 36 chapters that God is going, I want you to ask. Ask the why, ask the why. It's, it's okay, it's okay to, to look at your parents' marriage and go, God, why? It's okay to look at the world that we live in right now and go, God, why? It's okay to look at the pain that you're observing in your own life and go, God, why? But hear me, to get fixated on the why is to lose focus of what the gospel has to offer us. God does not give us the answer to a why, but he does give us something and it's far better. He gives us himself. And you're, you're going, how do I know? How do I build my life on God so that I know that God is enough? And in the New Testament, God gives us an answer in his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. You know, one of the beautiful things about Jesus is Jesus got us ready for this reality. 
In John chapter 16, he looked at his followers and he said, I have said these things to you so that in me you will have peace. In this world, you are going to have what? Trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In Matthew 24, he's looking at his followers and he's telling them about the end times. And he goes, there's going to come a time where the governments of the world are gonna take you and they're gonna kill you because of my name, because they hate me. He's literally letting his followers know that the destination to following Jesus is in fact death. If you look again at, I believe it's Matthew 14 and again in Mark 8, he looks at his followers and he said, if anybody's going to follow me, they're going to have to do two things. Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I want you to notice something here. In the Old Testament, we're given a picture of a blameless, innocent, suffering servant, and his name is Job. And it's amazing how much we wrestle with Job's reality. But Job is not the only blameless man that quote the Bible talks about, is it? You go to the New Testament and we're given a man, Jesus of Nazareth, is perfect, blameless, righteous, and he suffers to the deepest extent. For what? Why? What was his purpose in suffering? Why, why did God allow his own son to be lashed 39 times, to be broken, beaten, bruised, put on a cross. You know what the answer that the Bible gives us is? What was the reason? You and me. Can the worship team come up now? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our good news. And here's why. Because we want to know God, what is your answer to the brokenness, to the pain, and to the suffering of this world? And you know what God's answer is? Jesus. Can you stand with me? There's a lot more that goes into this message. I talked about Satan's objective. <laughs> What did he want? Satan wanted to prove to God that Job did not love God for God, but that he just loved what God had to give him. Job's objective, what did Job want to know? He wanted to know why he was suffering. And the question I think that we need to ask ourselves when we read the book of Job, and this is the most important question, what was God's objective? What was God looking to accomplish by telling us this story in the Old Testament? And I'm gonna give you what I perceive that to be as I read this book, but I want you to wrestle with it. I think God's objective was to make himself more personal to Job, which was a greater gift than 14,000 camels are 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkey, and the seven sons and the three daughters that God restored to Job at the end of this story. God's ultimate objective was to make himself known more personally to Job. And hear me, 
I think that's God's goal with you and me, with all of the suffering in our lives. It's for him to make himself more known to us. Now, if we just read Job, that statement doesn't make sense. But as we look at the New Testament, we're actually given a better picture of why we suffer. We might, we might never know the many details for why, but we'll be given a big picture for the why. In Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul says, can we put this? Oh yeah, you're awesome. Way to put it up there. I can't read it though because I don't have my glasses on. Let me look down here. Philippians 3.10, Paul says this. I do these things so that I may know him, him being Jesus in the power of his resurrection and may share in his what? Sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want you to notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, I know that the life Jesus has invited me into is not a life of comfort. He goes, and I could care less for comfort. What I want, what Jesus has made me to want by giving me new life is I want life with God. That's who I want. I want the resurrection with him. And Paul knows, he goes, but I can't have the resurrection without the suffering. I can't have the resurrection without first death. This is why earlier in Philippians, Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. He goes, brothers and sisters, our suffering's not meaningless. It in fact takes us and transforms us from one degree of glory to another. In other words, your suffering your disease, your death, your despair, your discouragement, your depression, your brokenness is transforming you into the image of Jesus. That's what God does with our suffering. As he says, let me show you how I can take what the enemy meant for evil <laughs> and use it for good. This is the story of the Bible, is it not? It's the story of Israel, that, an un, that, that a faithless and an unfaithful nation who would constantly turn their back on God, who would continually walk away from God, who would continually worship other idols and submit to other kings and submit to other nations, God keeps running after them. And he takes all of what they do, all the brokenness that they have, and he uses it for their good and for his glory. But it doesn't just stop there. Our suffering has even more of a purpose. It's not that it just transforms us into the image of Jesus. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, no, 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 no. Look here, brothers and sisters, this light and momentary affliction that you are experiencing is working for you an eternal weight of what? Glory. That's not worth being compared. So he says, don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, this is what I wanna say to you with that. What this doesn't mean is that the believer goes searching for suffering. 
That would be the logic, right? That wait a minute, if suffering <laughs> transforms me into the image of Jesus, why don't I pursue suffering? That's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is that you pursue Jesus. That you pursue Jesus. Now here's the thing. Suffering is not the goal of the gospel, but it is a guarantee. It's not the goal of the gospel, but it is a guarantee. Now hear me, it's not a matter of if you are ever going to ask God the question, why? It's a matter of when. And when you come to that place of asking God, why? The question that's gonna be before you is, is God enough? Is God enough? Or do I need to find reason in anything else to give me peace for what I'm walking through? Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear me say, Jesus is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. In the midst of your suffering, in light of your suffering, he's pursuing you. Drew, can we bring down the lights? I want you to bow your head. And I wanna simply invite you to fear the Lord. See God for who he is. Submit your life to him and observe your heart and identify where you have believed that lie that God is not enough. And instead of asking God to give you the answer to why, realize that God has chosen instead to give you himself. And himself is enough. So as we head back into this song, we sing these words. You are the Lord, sovereign and strong, steadfast in love, prince of peace. I want you to realize what you're saying. In every single one of those statements, you are declaring God is enough. God is enough. And what it allows you to do is look at the pain in your life and say, my God is in control. He's got me. He has got me. He has got me. And he is utilizing this. He is utilizing this to transform me evermore into the image of Jesus. This suffering is not purposeless. It is not aimless. It is working for me an eternal weight of glory that is not worth being compared to anything else that this world has to offer. Jesus is enough. He's enough. You get what you want, you don't, he's enough. You have the health that you want, you don't, he's enough. Your parents stay married or they don't, he's enough. You get the job you want to or you don't, he's enough. Your parents get riddled with cancer. You, you have a loved one who dies, God is enough. And that's the comfort of the good news, that he is enough. Let's worship brothers and sisters. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.